You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Odessa, Texas. You can connect with us online by visiting RedeemerChurchOdessa.org. ...of being in prison. He's been talking about these other people that have used Paul's imprisonment as an opportunity to afflict Paul and build up a platform for themselves. Paul, though, is a picture of holy contentment. He ends the discussion on his circumstances by saying he is going to rejoice. He is saying, presently, I am rejoicing. Then he turns his eye to the future. He says, I will rejoice. I will continue to rejoice. Francis Chan says that rejoicing, especially in suffering, greatly honors Jesus. You rejoice in what you value. When you rejoice in suffering, it shows people that your treasure isn't anything in this world. It's as you were saying, everything else can fall apart. And I can still sing because Christ is my treasure. We're getting a picture of the heart of the Apostle Paul here. Paul is allowing his view of and his relationship with Jesus to inform his view on his present circumstances as well as any future outcomes. And if I'm honest, I need to hear that often because when we are secure in our salvation, when we are secure in our adoption as sons and daughters of God through Jesus, we can be confident that whatever hardships we endure can be redeemed and used by God for our good and for his glory. And not only that, when we have Jesus as the Lord of our lives, Really and truly, the primary motivation on our lives, it affects how we relate to one another within the body of Christ. So Paul writes this letter as a suffering believer to a suffering church. And there is a lot of co-encouragement that is taking place here. Let's pick it up in verse 19. Verse, uh, Philippians 1 verse 19 says this, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ that this will turn out for my deliverance. So Paul is highlighting here that the church of Philippi is praying for him. And in conjunction with God through the Holy Spirit, God is helping him to persevere in his present circumstances. And this was a good reminder for me too. Sometimes... Sometimes I am slow to pray. Sometimes I am slow to pray, especially when things are difficult. But this text, along with the whole of the New Testament, invites us to pray in all circumstances and to pray without ceasing, as Paul will tell the church in Thessalonica. And more times than I like to admit, I complain first. Listen, prayer is synonymous with the presence and power of God. Prayer, like reading the Bible, like reading Scripture and Scripture memorization, is a means in which God works in us. 
when we pray, we are submitting ourselves to the will of God. And he grows in us then a desire to do his will and a desire for obedience and a desire for submission to the lordship of Jesus in our lives. So we see this church and they are praying. They are praying for Paul's deliverance from prison. But that isn't the thrust of what Paul means when he talks about deliverance. He isn't talking about deliverance in the temporal sense of the word. Paul is talking about ultimate, salvific deliverance. Paul has already been saved by Jesus, but he is not yet finished. He's not yet complete. Paul is still a person. Paul is still a sinner in need of the saving grace of Jesus on his life. This deliverance that Paul is talking about is ultimate, It's the Greek word soteria. It means salvation. So if you like theological words, the word is soteriology. Dude, you left me hanging. Thank you, Matt. Come on, dude. I know. It's all right. Uh, Soteriology. It's the study of salvation. And the end of soteriology, the soteria that Paul speaks of, is the glorification of the believer. It means the nature of believers after death and judgment. This is the final step in the application of redemption. So Paul is saying while release from prison would be nice, Paul is viewing his situation through the lens of eternity. Paul is viewing his deliverance in terms of ultimate vindication in life and in death, free from suffering in a life lived in eternity in the presence of Jesus. Paul is using this word soteria, not putting an emphasis on his personal safety, but rather he is putting the emphasis on God's sovereignty that regardless of the outcomes of our circumstances, God is going to deliver us ultimately. And finally, and Christians will be with him for eternity. Paul's focus is not only on the present circumstances, but also and primarily in the future deliverance of his soul as evidenced in the power of God. So Philippians 1 verse 20, it says, As it is, my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your account. So Paul comes to this like proverbial fork in the road. I imagine Paul sitting in his prison, house arrest, chained to a Roman guard, thinking through his life and thinking about this trial, and thinking about the impending verdict that's to come. Am I going to be pardoned, or am I going to be condemned to death? And he's really faced with two great options, right? He speaks of hope. 
And it isn't hope like we often use the word hope. Like, I hope the Red Raiders get it together and win some games. Or, I hope my kids behave. Or, I hope that we get some rain. Or, I hope that we can go to Torchies after church. It's not that kind of hope. No. When Paul speaks of hope, he's speaking of confidence. This is hope anchored in God's promises to us, made through Jesus and sealed with the Holy Spirit. Hope, then, by definition, is rooted in the nature and character of God. God in three persons, the blessed trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Christian hope is that God will finish what he started by not only forgiving us through his death, through the death of the Son, Jesus, and completed through the resurrection, but Christian hope also rests in the hope that Christ is going to return. Christian hope is rooted in the holiness of Christian community as people who are set apart by God to love and delight in him and the hope that is given to us through the renewal of us through the blood of Jesus. This hope, this hope of confidence is that Jesus has been resurrected and he is king and he is not dead, but he is alive and he's ruling and reigning and he loves us and is pleased with you as a believer. This hope will not lead you to guilt and it won't lead you to shame and it won't lead you to fear. And it won't lead you to condemnation, but it will always lead to God's glory and your good. And that will happen in one way or another. So just consider with me for a second the goal of your life as a believer. This is a constant refrain for me as a preacher, but I think it's so important for us as believers. The goal of your life as a believer is not heaven. That is a nice and awesome reward that awaits you as a person whose faith is in Jesus for salvation, but that's not the goal. And so often, we hear people talk about heaven without mentioning the fact that they will be with Jesus. You may think about all the blessings of a coming kingdom but the only reason that heaven is desirable is because Jesus is there. And Jesus has finished the work that he set out to finish at creation, and that is to redeem a people unto himself who will dwell with him in his presence, free from sin forever. So the goal of the Christian life, then, is the honor of Christ. And Paul says it's the honor of and glory of God. The goal of the Christian life is having your hope anchored in the return of Christ who will return for the glorification of himself and the glorification of the church. And so in our living, we seek to honor Jesus. And when a believer has finished their race and dies a physical death, they are then ushered into the presence of Jesus. And this too honors and glorifies Christ. So whether by living 
or by dying unto Jesus, the goal is Christ. And the goal is Christ's glory. And the goal is his honor. And the goal is his fame. And the goal is his renown. And so Paul says he has two really great options. Live for Christ now or die and be with Jesus. Paul says to live for Christ then means he doesn't care about his own reputation, but he only cares about Christ's reputation. You show what's most important to you by the way you live. And Christian, Paul is calling you to value Jesus above all else. Your life as a Christian flows from a union with Jesus. So the more devoted you are to Jesus, the more you will strive to honor him in your life. And this is a statement of grace, not of shame and condemnation. This is a statement of grace because Paul is not saying that in order to honor Jesus, you will live a perfectly sinless life, but rather you get to lean into the grace that is yours in order to sustain you, in order to sustain you in your pursuit of Christ and in order to worship him. Jesus went to the cross in order to set you free, to worship him and to delight in him and to live for him. And we will continue to struggle and sin, and there is grace to keep going. And when we as believers reach the end of our race, Jesus be praised, because we have finished this race with perseverance in him. Paul isn't advocating escaping the heart of this life, but he is emphasizing eternal joy even now as we face struggle and suffering. There is faithful and fruitful joy as we strive to live for Jesus. Paul is saying, they can kill me and I'll be with Jesus. Or they can let me live and I'll live for Jesus. If we treasure Jesus above all else, this can be our perspective and our perception as well. To live means honoring Christ through our faithful pursuit of Jesus. And to die means we possess Jesus in the fullest extent possible. Listen to me, Christian. Death is not your enemy. Death is painful for those who are left. And death reminds us that this world is broken. But death, as a believer, means you've finished your race and you will stand before the Lord, covered by the blood of Jesus. And that speaks forgiveness over you. That speaks forgiveness over your sins. And it speaks peace with God on your behalf. So Paul talks about his desire to depart and be with Jesus. He uses this nautical term, Tony Morita says that death, as Paul describes it, for Christians is like a boat. Uh, But think about it not like a boat on a lake, but like a cruise ship on the ocean, setting sail for some amazing destination. If life is like Galveston, death takes you to a place like a tropical paradise. Paul, as he's verbally processing 
He's verbally processing his desires for us in real time. It's clear that he comes to this conclusion that his purpose in ministry is not done. Paul says it's necessary for him to remain for the benefit of the Philippian church. So let's look at the end of our text together. Pick it up in verse 25. Paul says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So Paul seems convinced that he will be exonerated. And while there is no biblical accounts of his release, there is biblical evidence that he was released. So for example, Romans 15.24 says, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. So it looks like Paul got out and actually got to go to Spain. Uh, there is some first century church uh, history evidence that suggested that Paul was released in 62 AD. The book of Acts uh, ends around 60 AD. And so Paul would then return to Rome and was eventually martyred in around 64 AD. That's uh, just some free Bible study information for you and all a little bit beside the point. Paul here is predicting his release Paul is convinced that it's better for him to stay alive in order that the Philippians would progress in the faith. And not only just progress in the faith, but also that they would do so in joy. This isn't a you ought to or you should progress in the faith. It's actually a gift to you that you get to progress in the faith. It's a gift to you that you have faith at all. And a gift to you that God grows us in faith in his timing. So let me ask you a few questions. Paul isn't saying that if he died, if he died today, the whole world would fall apart. That's not what Paul's saying. He's also not saying that the church would end if he died. But he is committing himself to the service of others. So are you serving others? Specifically, are you serving others in your church. Think about your membership here. If you're a member of Redeemer Odessa, and shameless plug, if you're not, we'd love for you to join. But if you are a member here, just think about what that means. If you left Redeemer Odessa, do you think that you would be missed? Like, what if you moved away or if you found another church, would your church feel it? If not, why not? I think about my arm or my leg. If I lost my leg, I would go on living. But I'd surely miss it. Paul is looking at the church under the authority of Jesus, who is the head of the church, and he says, the church needs me. And the church needs my service. So I am going to submit my wants and my desires to Jesus and take on the form of a humble servant and serve. The needs of this church ought to outweigh our desires and our preferences. Because the church then exists as a vehicle, the means in which God uses to reach people for Jesus in this town and beyond. The church is the means in which God uses to reach the world, and the church is the means for which 
Believers can grow in holiness. In order for a church to be the church that God is calling the church to be, everyone then must do their part and serve. Paul is looking at the needs of his friends in Philippi, and he says, this church needs faithful servants. That's why I'm going to go on living. Can you say that? That's serving. But that leads to a real and deeper issue of why we serve. Paul says it's for the progress of the faith of one another. So first we've got to answer the question, what does progress in the faith look like? We can go all over the New Testament to answer that question, but since we're in Philippians 1, let's just stay here to answer that question. Philippians 1 verse 9 says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. So Paul says progress in the faith looks like growing in the knowledge of God, who he is, his nature, his character, growing in our knowledge of his work to us. Paul says that progress in the faith looks like growing in love for God, and growing in love for one another as co-image bearers, as sinners in need of grace and mercy. Here's another opportunity to plug community. We can't grow in our love for one another, and we can't grow in our love for God without one another investing into the lives of each other and pushing one another to holiness. There you are. Philippians 1.11 says that we're filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul says, progress in the faith looks like fruitfulness for Jesus. It looks like the spirit-filled work of Jesus in obedient service to Christ. And when we serve Christ, when we are committed to his calling on our life for love and good works, his word in us and through us will never return empty. But progress doesn't just happen. So think about exercise with me for a minute. When I was in high school, I played sports, and we'd lift weights every day, and I found myself, the more committed I was to the workout regimen, the stronger that I got. And then my senior year, I started playing girls varsity volleyball. I did. Thank you, Paisley. I was just the equipment manager. I didn't actually play. But while the girls on the volleyball team were lifting weights, I was like airing up the volleyballs or goofing off somewhere else in the gym. So then my freshman year of college, I started working out again or trying to work out again, I should say, and I got discouraged because I wasn't as strong as a freshman in college as I was as a junior in high school because I had completely stopped progressing, completely stopped working out. And when there is no progress, there is atrophy, meaning when you don't progress, you actually regress. It's impossible to be neutral if you don't progress spiritually you will regress spiritually this is how it plays out in my own life I notice that when I'm not in the word consistently 
or when I'm not communing with God through prayer, it affects everything else. So when I'm not with Jesus, I'm not a kind husband or a kind dad. Or a good pastor. When I'm not with Jesus, when I haven't been with Jesus, my thoughts tend to be more fear-based and anxious. And when I'm not with Jesus, I am more tempted to sin. And actually, I seem more willing to engage in sin. For example, thankfully, in my life, I have not looked at pornography with any consistency or, or any regularity. But I do notice that when my spiritual disciplines are lacking, there is a high correlation between low output on spiritual disciplines and high temptation to look at porn. Thankfully, I don't, but the temptation seems to like easily creep in. Another example is that when I was in college, and maybe even a little beyond that, I had a really unhealthy relationship to alcohol. I wouldn't say that I was an alcoholic, but I surely was on the path to becoming one. And I can look back at that time in my life and think, and see the seasons where like, I was drinking very heavily. I was not abiding in Christ at all. And whatever that is for you, I know I'm not alone here. Uh, perhaps you can relate to this. The last couple of weeks, even, I have felt some heaviness in my soul and some discontentment and as I have considered the reasons why. I can confidently say that I have not been engaging with the Lord like I've needed to. It's not that I haven't been engaging at all with the Lord, but there have been moments where it has purely been out of discipline rather than delight. Or it looks more like a box check of me doing the stuff that I, I'm supposed to be doing. And so instead of delighting the Lord, I'm anxious. And actually... That is a really sweet mercy of Jesus to me. It's a sweet reminder that I belong to Jesus. So my anxiety this past week or two is actually a gift to me. Not that I enjoy it, but it is serving as a reminder to me that the Lord is trying to draw me near and draw me into himself and remind me that he is near and remind me that he wants me. Jesus wants me. So I can now progress in the faith. Spiritual regression will lead to spiritual digression and it will lead to depression. Again, the goal is that Jesus gets glory and honor out of your life. So if you feel stuck, if you feel stuck spiritually, if you feel like you're spinning your wheels, if you're depressed and anxious all the time, if you have no joy in Christ, Are you progressing in the faith? Do you desire to know Jesus more? 
Do you desire to grow in your knowledge of God and love for Christ and love for his church? If the answer is yes, then praise God and let's make a plan and get after it. If the answer is yes and you're struggling, then confess that to your group and ask for accountability and grow in Christ. It can be so intimidating because we live a very Western existence that, that wants everything now. You want it now. You want it complete now. You want it finished now. You don't want to struggle anymore. You thought you'd be further along than you are. When things are hard, culturally, we resist it. Culturally, we run from it. Following Jesus requires sacrifice. In order to grow in Christ, we have to let go of things. And sometimes you need to let go of really good things that keep you from growing in godliness. Sometimes it will require you to break up with that person who isn't pushing you towards Jesus. Sometimes it requires you breaking up with your phone that are distracting you from Jesus. Sometimes it is a reshuffling of your priorities to put the things of Jesus in the forefront, like prioritizing Jesus more than your work, more than your kids, and especially more than your kids' sports teams and your kids' extracurricular stuff. So I'm not saying you need to quit work, but some of you need to keep your work at work. And I'm not saying you need to not let your kids play sports, but let's be honest, if they're six, they don't need to be on a travel t-ball team. The goal is Christ. It's not your stuff. The goal is growth in Christ, not the latest whatever. The goal is Christ, not whatever everyone else's expectations are of you. What we see in the life of Paul is a calling on all of us as believers to defer. To defer our wants and our desires for the sake of knowing Jesus and to defer for the sake of others in order that they may know Jesus. Paul serves this church in order that they will grow in godliness. In a much more fuller and complete way, Christ too serves his church so that we may know him and that we may delight in him. Christ died to make enemies friends so that through his righteousness we are made righteous through the forgiveness of sins. Jesus served. Jesus who had everything served. He laid down his life in order to pay for those who are wayward, in order to pay for those who are wandering, in order to pay for hopeless sinners. Paul serves as a replica of Jesus, and Paul invites us to serve as a replica of Jesus in order that we can know him and in order that others may know him too. So are you willing to just say, Lord, grow in me a desire for you. God will answer that prayer. Grow in me a desire for you. And are you willing to say, Lord, use me however you will? Let's pray.